So this is the 39th episode of Rank and Review with my guest. Charlene Roach. That is correct. You were correct. <laughs> and uh, we're going to look at six comedies that are secretly horror movies. And as is typical with Rank and Review, there may be coarse language and there may be spoilers. Um, this is your host and writing comedian, Larry Parsons. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, so we're going to start episode 39 of Rankin Review with returning guest Charlene Chuckworld Roach. <laughs> Hello! <laughs> Hello! Um, and once again, we're not doing horror movies this time. Uh, mm. we're, we're, we're changing it up. Actually, in episode 10, I did an episode called um, Homicide Made Hilarious with Nataro, which was all like comedies with horror premises. Was that the one with Heathers? Heathers was in there, yeah. yeah. Um, so this time, uh, these are comedies, but I'm going to pause it. I'm going to put forth that these are comedies that are secretly horror movies, <laughs> or there's something about it where I think that the horror of the movie might come close to eclipsing the comedy. Yes. Um, so it's also a default, almost another what the fuck episode, because <laughs> it is a, a fairly strange, it seemed r random and unrelated list of movies, yeah. but, um. Was it just that they were comedies that attracted to them? Was there a specific movie that made you want this one? Or? Yeah, a little bit of both. So you, so you might recall our last podcast <laughs> when uh, we did True Life Horrors. Yeah. And I watched Schindler's List and Hitler's Last Days in the Bunker and all these really heavy true life stories. And I, I needed a change of pace. I needed... <laughs> And thankfully, you still have these options that are on the on the fringes of, you know, true horror, I think. And yeah. that's great because then I get to keep coming back. And so that's why I chose this one. I wanted um, something lighter. Yeah. <laughs> and then also, um, I'm a big fan of Death to Smoochie. And it was a movie that we watched a lot, actually, back in the day. Absolutely. And uh, I realized that it had been years and years since I'd watched it. And so I was... Um, yeah, I'm wanting to do that again. Smoochie! Smoochie! The six films that Charlene and I are going to be uh, talking about in this episode, um, from Barry Levinson, a political satire called Wag the Dog, or is it a horror movie? From uh, mad genius, writer, director, star, Dan Aykroyd, Nothing But Trouble. 
mm-hmm. um, full of his, you know, SCTV and Saturday Night Live buddies. Indeed. Um, speaking of SCTV, and um, we we need some Canada stank on this podcast, and <laughs> this is this is a like the most loud and proud Canadian movie I think I've probably done <laughs> so far on the podcast. Strange Brew: The Adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> The aforementioned Death to Smoochie, the critically lambasted mm. Death to Smoochie from yeah. uh, director Danny DeVito. Um, Spike Jones's first feature film, Being John Malkovich, mm-hmm. um, from interesting writer Charlie Kaufman. And lastly, we have the sort of Hollywood satire, uh, I guess, Swimming with Sharks, mm-hmm. starring Frank Whaley and Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. All of them horror movies, <laughs> maybe secretly, <laughs> secretly behind closed doors. Ostensibly, yeah, they're all very broad comedies, and, and a lot of times with some of the lists, I can sort of cheat and say, yeah, but there's an element of horror here. But I know, mm-hmm. for the most part, all of these are straight up comedies. I think the only one that would come close to making an argument for possibly being John Malkovich. It's an adult fairy tale, but I think in a lot of ways a very dark one. There's a crisis in the White House. What's the crisis? And the president's top advisors have been called together. Oh, jeez. The sexual misconduct occurred inside the Oval Office. With the election only days away, how much will this scandal affect the outcome? The president spent the weekend pressing the flash. He wasn't campaigning. He was dating, actually. Now, Washington's top spin doctor... We can distract the press for 11 days till the election. I think we got a chance. ...has an idea. We can't afford a war. And have the appearance of a war. But he can't pull it off without Hollywood's top producer. Uh, do I know you? We have some mutual friends in Washington. Why come to me? We want you to produce. You want me to produce your war? Not a war, it's a pageant. We need a theme, a song, some visuals. We need, you know, it's a pageant. So Barry Levinson is a pretty interesting director. He's prolific and he does very different things. For instance, as he was making Wag the Dog, he was also in the middle of production for Sphere, this huge, big-budget sci-fi film, which will also star Dustin Hoffman. This was sort of like a twin sister or brother project, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the fact that he was simultaneously making two so completely different movies mm-hmm. is kind of impressive. The fact that he was working on two movies simultaneously, actually, to me, is kind of impressive. Oh, yeah. Like, <sighs> we talked about in the last one, Schindler's List. Yeah. Uh, with, sorry, Spielberg during Schindler's List and Jurassic Park at the same time. Yeah, Again, impressive. Yeah, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, that's, like, to juggle all of that, you got to be a fairly sharp guy. And like I say, the movies are different. Like, um, just some of his resume. Diner, Bugsy, Toys... Good Morning Vietnam, Sphere. Most recently, he did this found footage horror movie called The Bay. Oh. Like, he's done a lot of... He's all over the place. So, yeah, I, I like him a lot um, as a director. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that having Barry Levinson as your name on the on the credits means... Equals success. It's going to be a good movie. Yeah. He's going to try something different every time. Yeah. And you can admire that. But when Absolutely. you're trying something different every time, sometimes you fall on your face. And uh, the film medium is not like, I think, if you're a painter or something, you spend all of these hours painting. Mm-hmm. But when you do your art show, you only put your best 10 pictures out, right? Yeah. If you're a filmmaker, yeah. all of your art gets shown. Yeah, right? yeah. All of it gets out there. You have to show it. Because you got to raise millions of dollars to get it made. And if you're going to have 
a cast like you have in Wag the Dog assembled. Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, you know. Um, yeah, you better come correct, you know. <laughs> so uh, here we are with Wag the Dog. It's uh, based on a p- popular uh, satirical novel that was seemingly more than prescient. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie came out right around the time of the Bill Clinton sex scandal. And yeah. a lot of people said that the whole let's go to war with Iraq was political distraction tactics to, to take light away from mm-hmm. this sex scandal, which was arguably being overblown or not by the media, uh, <laughs> um, but to try and get distract the people from that issue, this war is sort of started. In Wag the Dog, what we see is it's not an actual war that they're starting. It's a just completely media created mm-hmm. war. That they're going to get the American people passionately and patriotically mm-hmm. behind. And to, they only need a few key shots to yeah. get everyone on board. And they have a limited time frame. they got to get to an election and they have to cover up a huge story. Mm-hmm. Being that the President of the United States sexually assaulted a basically Girl Scout. I think they use a different name. They the do. Movie, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if it, that's yeah, essentially what she is. So Robert De Niro's character, who's like a, a political fixer, his name is Conrad Breen. He's like cynicism sort of embodied. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he is going to be the mastermind. He is somehow going to hold this together until after the election so that however they deal with the fallout of the sexual assault, he's already president. So that die has been cast. Mm-hmm. And basically whatever he has to do to get the job done, he's going to do. So he goes to this big Hollywood producer played, I think, quite well by Dustin Hoffman. Uh, he and some of his assistants, handlers, some played memorably by uh, Anne Hesch and a few other great star cameos get together to create this pageant and this war. Such as the, what would seem ridiculous, satirical setup <laughs> for Wag the Dog. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had I hadn't seen this movie before. Nice. So, um, so that was nice, and I really, really liked it. Yeah. It was really good. You know, sometimes, um, like Wag the Dog is was from nineteen ninety seven. I mean, that's quite some time ago now. Yeah. So, uh, you're never quite sure how these things are going to hold up. But I think, you know, you could tweak it in a few ways, like the cell phones they're using and kind of make it current technology and basically you could do that film today. But and it would still... Ex- it's not satire anymore. It would... Right? Yeah. It really does sort of seem like uh, prescient of like the propaganda machine that is most obviously represented by Fox News but that is almost every major news network can be count well guilty of right yeah not that they would necessarily knowingly create and flow with a a false story but Mm -hmm. in the desperate fear of being out scooped by another network plus the 24 7 nature of news these days right there's a pressure on them that didn't exist before then if you feel like you're being scooped by another network, you will go with that story before you know what the facts are. You'll yeah. just piggyback that story. Yeah. And you will make it a huge story just by the thunderstorm that the media itself will create. Yeah. And <clears throat> this sort of craziness is exactly what Breen, the Robert De Niro character, is counting on. Yeah. And he goes to Hollywood because Hollywood is where the best creative ideas mm-hmm. come to go. Well, he's really stuck on this idea about, I think he says, I think it's the Gulf War. Isn't that sad? I just watched this movie, but... 
I think it's two bombs falling on something, on a building or something that's a shot from the Gulf War. Yeah. And that was it. Everyone was into the Gulf War and everyone believed it or I don't know why. One image. But yeah. exactly. That that really sold that yeah. that war. And so, yeah, so that's what he thinks. I'll just go get this Hollywood producer. We just need that key shot, that key moment yeah. that pulls at heartstrings or that makes people really dig in and believe. And then we'll distract them for X amount of days um, before this election. And I don't remember the amount of days either. But I think it's like 12 or something yeah, like that. It's, it's quite short. Window. Yeah, got... yeah, but in, in public attention span, quite long. And because... for a story as hot as like this, this child basically being sexually assaulted by the president, Ugh. it would be like they're up against the wall. But that's the thing. If the, if the guy, the president does that, we don't want him to be president. So why is this elaborate machine here to protect this man at this point? This is another, you know... Seriously. Troubling Seriously. question. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, as you said, it came out around the same time as the, you know, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal came about. Yeah. Wasn't filmed then. No. That was... Purely coincidental. Also based off of a novel that would have been writ written even earlier than this, right? So yeah, yeah. Interesting. The film is adapted in part by David Mamet. I think you can definitely hear some Mametisms in some of the dialogue, but the uh, the cast is definitely game and in for that. I was just reading because I did a bit of research on the film, and they said during the filming of Wag the Dog, uh, they had an impromptu meeting with President Bill Clinton at a Was Washington hotel. So what's this movie about, Clinton asked De Niro. De Niro looked over to Levinson, Levinson, hoping he would answer the question. Levinson, in turn, looked over to Hoffman. Hoffman, realizing there was no one else to pass the buck to, is quoted as saying, so I just started to tap dance. I can't even remember what I said. <laughs> it's not about you. Definitely not so, about you. So I mean the fact that, you know, Clinton was so involved. Just, yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's a really interesting twist and sort of life reflecting art reflecting life sort of thing i mean it made it particularly strong and potent at the time but mm -hmm. i do think that at the time the level of subterfuge felt silly like made this movie comic mm -hmm. and it doesn't anymore for yeah. me i think that yeah. actually some of the humor is actually hurt by this yeah. because you know it's hard to laugh we're so far down that path now yeah you know and when we look at maybe at the time, this was kind of a, a little bit funny, a little bit gritty sort of thing. And now, agreed, it seems light. And I think of our current um, political shows we might watch that are on the cynical side. Oh my God, how true is this really? Like, well, you know? it's a prescient film in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of great people ought to show up for one scene roles like uh, mm -hmm. William mm -hmm. H. Macy, Woody Harrelson. Uh, Dennis I Leary, Craig T. Nelson, Kristen Dunst. Willie Nelson, Harlan Williams, Martin. John Cho, Jim Belushi, Andrea yeah. Martin. It's yeah, yeah. Like, it's great. <laughs> and it, like it's very everybody's strong good, everybody's strong, and the dialogue is snappy and funny. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when I watch this now, I do not laugh. It's just it, yeah. it, it doesn't hit me on that. And level. that's a secretly horror part. Hey? And that's what I where I sort of relate like. This should be funny, but I can't laugh at it. It's too close. It, it's too close to home. It's too mm -hmm. close to the nerve. doesn't mean it's not a great, fascinating, interesting film. In mm -hmm. fact, I think in Barry Levinson's catalog, it would rank pretty high for me. And it also utilizes Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro 
to where their their talents are. Dustin Hoffman is really good at big, flashy, speechifying, over the top roles. Oh, and he's so fantastic in this. He nails it, and he he's does. hilarious. He doesn't. He, his dialogue has a sameness to it, and a, and a, and and under a different actor, we would get sick of his speechifying. But like every time mm-hmm. he says, "This is nothing," it's funny, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and De Niro, likewise, he is really good at sort of playing it, playing his cards close, playing reserved, playing the thinker, but the master manipulator, the puppet yeah. master, and yeah. uh, they're both playing to their talents in a in a solid script. So yes, they are. That is all to the to the yes, but again for a comedy. Not laughing a ton. <laughs> Doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem right. Uh, Willie Nelson. <laughs> I I love that right from the beginning, they're like, we need a song. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not enough to just create this image of war that we're going to broadcast over the media to try and hook people. We need to dig into the heartstrings further, get them going by yeah. by creating this song. And so Willie Nelson at the table trying to like work out the lyrics and stuff. Yeah. And then later when they do the whole celebrity, like, sing-along, yeah. like, we're all getting together to support these people in Albania, or the war in Albania, ugh. Yes, we didn't We're against mention. it, it's just, it's so ridiculous that it's gone The to pageant happen. that it's created is a yeah. false war with Albania, yeah. I don't know if that plot point got mentioned, but yeah. yeah. I like the way they can sometimes paint themselves into corners here, like, they're, like you say, sort of building a train track in front of themselves here and trying to keep the train on the tracks. It's like a, a moving machine. Um, so they, they, they get down this guy Schumann and they like the, the sound of the guy's name, so they're going to make him a war hero and they <laughs> pull this guy out of a prison or whatever before looking at him too carefully. Yeah. And by the time that they're going to introduce this guy to the world, they've got, you know, they've implanted a record in the... the Library of Congress, <laughs> and people are throwing their spare shoes on telephone wires when send Schumann home, and they find out that Schumann is like a drooling sociopath, <laughs> of no use to them. And again, in, in typical unfazable Dustin Hoffman batter, oh, this is nothing. We can deal with this, <laughs> and they do. <laughs> That's creative people for you, hey. I got this, I got this. What's the message of the movie, do you think? Oh, it's a pretty dark one. It, it, it's sort of like the conspiracist angle would say. There's like a, a room where there's a table where 12 people sit at. And those Known are the as the that, Illuminati. Yeah, and and yeah. they run the world. Um, yeah. This is like the people behind the scenes really run it. The Conrad Breens of the world run the world, you know. And he's, uh, uh, like I said, basically cynicism embodied Um, he is a very intelligent very capable person who is knowingly using his powers for ill Mm -hmm. and for the ill of everyone Mm -hmm. well and spoiler alert you know at the very end of the movie uh dustin hoffman's character has worked so hard has put so much into it Coupled with the fact that he's, you know, an egotistical... Maniac. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And he he needs credit. He insists on credit. He can't... And yet, that is, of course, is the one thing he can't have, right? And that's so typical Hollywood, right? De Niro basically said, we'll give you anything you want. Yeah. Except credit. And that's established very very early, right? Yeah. But 
that's the that's the sticking point. Yeah. You're the one thing I can't have is the one thing I must have. But he yeah. doesn't seem to understand because he is Hollywood that he's playing in a real world. Just because he's creating a pageant doesn't mean that there is not real world consequences. That's right. The stakes are high <laughs> and he doesn't get it. And then De Niro doesn't even fight him on it. Like no. that's kind of, he just kind of nods and he's like, all right. He tries to convince him otherwise, but it's pretty clear he's going to dig in his heels. He and does He just try. makes a call. You're yeah. talking about De Niro being, you know, his character being yeah. really the one in control. He makes a call and he gets him off. Yeah. You know? But I do think he does try. He has the conversation. And oh, you get the feeling like he could get anybody wiped off the map with a yeah. phone call. And he doesn't need to have the conversation. Right. But he has the conversation. And he knows that this man will not be able to keep this a secret. Yes. He just won't. Yeah. And that's the price that must be paid. Yeah. To keep America on the right track. To keep and this particular president And it's kind of a sigh and a shrug of his shoulders and he moves on with his day. Yeah. You know, like. Uh, um, but it's, yeah, it's very dark politics. Is I do want to say that uh, Anne Hesh is in the movie. We didn't really talk much about her. No, uh, but she's really good. She's solid. Yeah. And I guess I don't often say that about Anne Hesh. I mean, I, I Well, I guess she's I don't been a little bit all over she, the map, shall we say. I suppose. I guess I don't often say, wow, that was awful. But very rarely do I say, no, she's solid. She is, she is you know, going blow to blow with... Bob De Niro and Dustin yeah. Hoffman here in scenes, yeah. and she's she's holding her weight. Apparently, yeah. the role was written for a man. Yes, um, yes. It didn't. I didn't feel that necessarily watching the part. It didn't. I guess it didn't seem essential that any of the character be male or female. But uh, mm -hmm. it was it was a solid performance, and I just wanted to call her out on that because I guess I don't often sing the praises of Van Hash. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> So Hoffman's character is said to have been based upon the famed director Robert Evans. Similarities have been noted between the character and oh, and Robert Evans did uh, Rosemary's Baby, The Godfather, Chinatown. Similarities have been noted between the character and Evans' work habits, mannerisms, quirks, clothing style, hairstyle, and large square-framed eyeglasses. Hmm. In fact, the real Evans is said to have joked, "I'm magnificent in this film." <laughs> Interesting parallel, though. Uh, Robert De Niro played the devil in this uh, movie, Angel Heart. Mm. And uh, in the movie, when he appears as the devil and makes his sort of Faustian deals, he looks and acts in a lot of ways, like 80s-era Martin Scorsese. <laughs> and huh? they're good friends, so you can't help think that he's sort of yeah, pissing right. in Marty's pool. <laughs> You're know, the devil, yo. I'm not like a conspiracy guy, but this is the kind of movie that, that leads me down that, that rabbit hole sometimes. <laughs> right? And why not? It could be. It totally could be. And then the other thing, and we were mentioning this earlier before we started recording, that um, Barry Levinson and his crew got the entire film in the can in less than a month. So you're talking about him filming Sphere and kind of being at a, a plateau or a pause in that in that uh, production and so he did this but special effects needed to get worked out or something i don't know seriously less than a month i mean it's it's largely a, a dialogue driven movie Absolutely. so i mean i think that that helps a lot but all the same yeah. well done well it's done. also weirdly old-fashioned to have a movie that's full of fast snappy dialogue and it just depends mm. on that to be funny there's like it's, it's not necessarily about pratfalls or anything like that, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's refreshing to just see a genuinely smart comedy. Chevy Chase. Hey, you just passed the Garden State Parkway South. Don't worry, I'll get you there. Demi Moore. Oh, no, cop. Driver, step outside the car, please. John Candy. Read him. Yeah, that's nice, thanks. The lower back, please. I got an itch right up in there. It's good, thank you. Not today, sir. This may be... Valkenvania, but it is still America. And wouldn't mind, would you just write a ticket here or 
We could settle it some other way, perhaps. That's not the way things work around here. What is this place? Revolving district court for the village and shire of Alkenvania is now in order. The Honorable Reeve Alvin Balkanizer presides. Dan Aykroyd. Put out that dog rocket! Nothing but trouble. I'm so sorry. I've mentioned nothing but trouble before. And uh, anybody who's listened to those past podcasts kind of know that I'm not going to have a lot of great things to say about Nothing But Trouble. When did you mention it? <laughs> what are the podcasts you remember? Um, I believe uh, in the episode in which Jerry Award-winning actress <laughs> Demi Moore won her Jerry Award. Oh. I mentioned that she followed up her performance in Ghost. Oh, with nothing. With Nothing But Trouble, mm-hmm. which I referred to, I believe, as a debacle. <laughs> Uh, it's written and directed and starring Dan Aykroyd, actually co-written with his brother. It's a family affair. And um, $40 million budget. Ugh. And as we In dis- 1991. And as we discussed, it had an $8 million return. It was, on every level, sort of catastrophic. Mm. Dan Aykroyd is, you know, successful enough that he, you know, could brush this bomb off and go on to bigger, brighter things. From the man who brought us Ghostbusters, you know, this is not what you're expecting to see. It's a comedy that forgot the punchlines, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) You know, it wants to be dark and satirical and uh, Chevy Chase and this woman, Demi Moore, who's weirdly attracted to Chevy Chase for some reason. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we were... Chevy Chase's charm was running out of fuel right around this time. I think he had this movie and he had John Carpenter's Memoirs of an Invisible Man and then basically his movie career became exclusively Drek. The late, great John Candy mm-hmm. um, who does a lot of this movie in drag and without anything to say, you know. Uh, yeah. He's not not funny. In fact, he's the closest thing to funny <laughs> in the movie, I guess I'll say. Mm. There is a strange charm to John Candy and drag that I would not have anticipated. (laughs) Basically, the story of these two yuppies who get pulled over in sort of this rural hellhole and go through some sort of deliverance type of misadventure uh, with these people that look like... Do you remember in the 80s they had Spitting Image, this puppet company out of Britain that did like caricatures of people? Yes, didn't they do the royal family and that kind of thing? absolutely. Was it boxing matches or something that they used to do? They were in a bunch of stuff for a while. They did like a video for Genesis. Oh, like a commercial. They're they're really grotesque puppets. And the makeup Mm -hmm. that is used on... Dan Aykroyd for a couple of characters and a few other just creatures around that you see in the movie mm-hmm. sort of look like this. They're, they're disgusting. Yeah. The movie feels tangibly icky to me and it doesn't seem like it's funny or particularly trying to be funny. Like, I keep missing where I'm supposed to see the... I needed a laugh track. Yeah. I needed a studio audience to supply me with when Zingers took place. But I, you know, I'm biased, I guess. Uh, I... I was predisposed to not like this movie because it just, it's always been a thorn in my side. So I'm willing to hear a second opinion. <laughs> so where am I wrong? How, how did, here's, how did here's, I misinterpret nothing but trouble? Here's the second opinion. Uh, swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my opinion is not drastically different from yours. It is, I had not seen nothing but trouble before um, I got you this You might assignment. have gone your entire life. And not seen this movie. Likely, if likely. not for this podcast. Mm-hmm. An hour and 40 minutes, I'll never get back. <laughs> no, it's... 
it's very dated as movies are from that time. Now, mind you, I've uh, I have some leeway with that because I have a lot of uh, movies from the '80s or early '90s that I still love. Yeah. So I mean, that's not a complete um, strikeout for me, but there's a little bit of that. That said, the special effects. Uh, I mean, you talked about them being gross. They are. Um, they're well done. You really the money in this movie was spent on the production value you know what the set looked like and then also the makeup and i think the makeup went up for an award for something as well it was that good but so that stuff is really good and really strong and still i didn't mind seeing it today but the rest of it was terrible there was no chemistry between demi and and chevy chase and chevy chase was like phoning it in or something like there was no there was no variation to his uh character he was just kind of the same guy despite you know these terrible things i don't know well he looked bored to vaguely annoyed which is a not inappropriate to his character's place in the movie but i also felt it mirrored my expression watching the movie I like ambitious comedies, and mm. I like original comedies, and mm-hmm. I guess you could argue that this is that. Whatever Aykroyd was attempting, I have never seen before or since, um, and the tangible yuckiness of it, it's weird, but it, I, it, it took me back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. where I said the experience of the movie is so gross, like, that it, it gives it, like... You, you get almost a physical reaction from it. Yeah. I kind of felt that here. Nothing but trouble, too. There, There is something so gross about those sausages that they're eating and, like, Ugh. his coiled penis nose. Like, yes. His nose looks like yes. balls. Am I wrong? And those... <laughs> oh, they are. They are. From the profile... <laughs> from a profile shot, it's, it's a penis. Yeah. It's a penis on his nose. Yes. Yes, and then he takes his nose off at night. Yes. For whatever reason. Just but for then a horrifying just moment. Gross no nose face. There's this elaborate, you talk about the production values, like roller coaster death machine. Okay, now that was good. Yeah. I actually thought. <laughs> Weird, like bizarre system, Rube Goldberg sort of device yeah. to kill people in this most elaborate way. And yeah. somehow they're this own jurisdiction and this this guy's basically judge, jury, and executioner of this yeah. small corner of the world. And it's like the worst fun house ever, right? <laughs> like they keep getting caught in places and moved to the next place and yeah, but in I order, did like. Oh, sorry, but I did like the roller coaster. I thought that. that in was... order to get out of a, a speeding ticket, I believe is what the initial problem is. He, he ends up being yeah. betrothed to marry, you know, transvestite John Candy, and uh, yeah. Demi Moore is like cast outside to where Dan Aykroyd's ugly mutant grandchildren, who've been cast out and are, are forbidden from entering the house. And they're gross repulsive like garbage yeah. pail kids like like garbage pail kids <laughs> like totally for another obscure late 70s early 80s reference for the kids <laughs> in the audience but black black yeah black yeah I, I this is the most aggravating kind of bad movie to me because it is just steeped in talent I mean, as much as I can talk shit about Chevy Chase, the man has made me laugh in the past. Oh, yeah. He he will forever have like flesh. Him. He'll ever, yeah. you know, like, <clears throat> he more than punches his weight in, in Three Amigos and he's working with Steve Martin, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, National Golden Lampoon. Age, like, 
best of Chevy Chase really, really good. But mm-hmm. this, again, I, I, I think if you're doing this as a favor for a friend and then you read the script and you're like, don't think it's funny, then like, <laughs> what do you do? You, you don't quit. You just you show up and you do the lines, I guess. But No, nobody's... but he didn't even seem to have anything. Like, it would be one thing if you could see him really working at it but it's not working. Yeah. But that's not even the sense I get. Like his heart wasn't in it, and that's kind of what it there. looks like. Yeah. You know. And Demi Moore just seems lost. She seems fairly like I don't think that comedy. And is... I don't think she gets her character. Her character makes really weird. This is, well. She just reacts in strange ways that I don't understand. I don't. I mean, I'm not gonna. She's a Jerry Award-winning actress, so I have to respect her anymore. But I do think that she's better served in a more dramatic, look-at-me-cry ghost environment than she is in a wacky, look-at-me-fall-down-or-try-to-seduce-this-repugnant-man thing. She, it just didn't seem a comfortable fit. I don't even know if it was a performance. I just think that from a casting yeah. level, it made sense. Demi Moore was hot. She was a sort of a big yeah. celebrity at the time, so yeah. she was kind no of a name. get. Yeah. But um, I don't know if she was right for it, but I don't know who would be either. So <laughs> No, not when the movie's wrong. <laughs> but then can anyone be right? It's not an easy thing to make a movie. And if you're like directing this movie and starring in it and you wrote it and you're doing it while in this huge prosthetic makeup, like being in the middle of that storm, I guess I can see it's possible like the forest for the trees thing. You, you, you're into each individual moment, but you're not seeing the complete picture. And uh, maybe it wasn't a comedy. Maybe this was like, apparently this was inspired by true events in a way. He he was pulled over and he had to go to some local jurisdiction court and mm-hmm. was treated rather severely by this sort of backwater judge. And right. this was sort of the seed. This is, this is sort of his judgment on rural America or something. I don't know what itch he was scratching, but it's more unpleasant than it is funny to me and uh it's a horror movie premise more than any other ones like as far as you know your car breaks down or you get pulled over by the wrong cop and your situation just gets worse and worse and worse but i don't feel any suspense and i don't laugh so the movie just spins and spins it does it Uh. does Wah, wah. In doing research about this film, um, this was Tupac Shakur's acting debut. Yay, Tupac! Mm-hmm. When Digital Underground did their whole song in the middle, which right. you neglected to mention. It's a, oh, the digital, it's a major point There's a huge the song in the middle of the movie to help pass the time, I guess. There's a device Chevy Chase uses in the car that sort of like a direction navigation oh that's right it is yeah like like a gps it's a primitive version yeah but that sort of thing didn't really exist at the time and it was sort of a weird kind of i guess clever thing an uh, an ocean of reality or an island of reality in an ocean of shit right (laughs) Uh, you got one thing right Uh, I think that you have to be a smart man to make a movie this bad but (laughs) like it's not. It in, happens. I think if you go back to your. It's your, not bad because it's incompetent, though. Is what I'm trying to say. Like, I guess the script had very right. obvious problems right. that only a writer would miss, <laughs> right. and that that helps if you're both the writer and the director. But yeah, um, like, I, I've called Ackroyd a mad genius before, and I I still think he earns it. 
Oh, sometimes, he's a talent. Yeah. For sure he is. He's... Sometimes his mind will give us Ghostbusters. And sometimes yeah. it will give us nothing but trouble. And it's worth Ghostbusters. And worth that's it. just it. If he was a painter at a gallery show, he would show you Ghostbusters. <laughs> and he would not show you nothing but trouble. But if you spent $40 million making the movie, it's going to be Ugh. on the screens. And, um, yeah. yeah, it got some Razzie re- uh, uh, awards and it's not remembered well. But it, it's not even infamously bad. It's just sort of this forgotten item and... Uh, it's sad, you know, in the early 90s, we didn't know it, but we were we were getting the last few performances from John Candy, and uh, mm-hmm. I still love seeing him, just because I fucking love John Candy, yeah. the man, but yeah. I don't feel like he's being used to the height of his powers here. No, you know? I don't know why they choose or chose not to let him speak. Yeah. Like, I know he's in drag, and I'm sure his voice would sound male, but we're looking at him in drag, yeah. so we, we kind of know that already, but all he does is, hmm? You know, it's kind of these, yeah. Also, total ending fail, can we say? Do you recall yeah. the ending of the movie? Yeah. They get out, and they're back home, and Demi's all curled up with him, and they go to a news story, and the whole Volcavania, wherever the place was, has been destroyed, but the judges survived. And he has the uh, driver's license of Chevy Chase, and he right. says he's going to live with his new son-in-law in New York, and Chevy Chase turns and runs and leaves like a cartoon body shaped hole in the wall. Utter ending failure. If that was the world that we lived in, if like it was that much of a cartoon world that they could do that, why the fuck didn't they do that when they first arrived at the courthouse? Uh, I I wish that there were more like multi-million dollar comedies that were sort of set in strange landscapes and did sort of ambitious things. And uh, sometimes when you swing high, you know, you miss and you you fall flat on your face. But like you say, it's worth it because <clears throat> every now and then you just nail it and hit a home run, right? That's right. Um, so I, I'm glad Aykroyd's out there, but um, mm-hmm. I could not imagine a scenario in which I would recommend somebody watch this movie and I heretofore apologize (laughs) for making you watch it because if not for me you wouldn't have ever seen Nothing But Trouble and I do think I might lose some sleep over that. (laughs) Are you being too hard on yourself? All our beer, he's loaded. No way. He's supposed to roar. Maybe, maybe I ought to crank his tail, eh? That would start him up. Maybe we okay, ought to... start up. Come on, eh? Maybe we ought to call start Martin up. Perkins, eh? <laughs> Get Wild Kingdom here, eh? Hey, come on. Oh, Jesus, getting mad, oh. eh? Yeah. Oh, Jesus, we better get going. You do the thing, eh? Oh. <clears throat> Good day. Oh, do, do our new movie theme, eh? Yeah, okay. Okay, good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Welcome to our movie, eh? Okay, our topic is uh, movies. It's the difference between TV and movies, eh? Okay, go back to movies. Jeez, now that hoser's growling. Yeah. Take off, will you? We're doing our movie. Don't wreck our show, you hoser. Okay, uh... Full disclosure. Before we begin to talk about the epic, strange <laughs> brew, the adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie... As a child, 
I loved SCTV and I loved Bob and Doug McKenzie. I just thought they were hilarious. I remember going to the mall with my friend Scott, who's been on this show, and we found really cheap vinyl soundtrack editions of this film on record. And we both wanted to get the same album, but we weren't sure if it was a good idea to get the same album. We had to like call our parents to consult <laughs> if this was a good idea. But we decided it was our money. We both wanted it. We both got this album. So I listened to the shit out of the soundtrack of this album, and there's lots of little funny beats to it. And it holds a special place in my heart. So it's going to be a positive review for me. But I drop the caveat that <clears throat> I was all in it when I was a kid. I was predisposed. Yeah. I listened to their comedy album. I watched SCTV. And then it's sort of yeah. fun that this sort of has like an SCTV thread, at least through the first half mm -hmm. of this. Andrea Martin was in Wag the Dog. And John mm -hmm. Candy was in Nothing But Trouble. Yeah, it's true. And here we are. Rick Moranis' first feature film ever where he was in it. And... Uh, huh. He and Dave Thomas wrote and, and directed this this movie in Hi. Canada. And <clears throat> I've talked in the past about Canadian films have this strange thing where they seem to like just be a little weirder than you'd expect them to be, or they would just go places that you just so don't anticipate and, yeah. and maybe maybe they shouldn't go, but they keep you on your toes. I think that that's very true here in Strange Brew. There are many mysteries to this movie. <laughs> but how in the world could I say that it's secretly a horror movie? Good question. Well, it's secretly Hamlet. Yeah. We can start there. Yeah. And if we want to look at Hamlet, Hamlet is a horror movie, or it could be. Either Hamlet goes crazy, or, Hamlet, or the ghost of Hamlet's father tells him to avenge his death. Either way, that looks like a horror scenario to me. Yeah. The canvas that we're painting on here is very different, though. Two hosers, eh? <laughs> Bob and Doug McKenzie, like... They try to scam Elsinore Brewery, right? <laughs> but it doesn't work out, but it does. Because they get jobs, eh? <laughs> Beauty. Beauty, right? <laughs> but then it finds out that the owner, the, her, her dad was like totally like killed by her uncle. And her uncle who's running things, has this new guy there, and, and, and everything's all crazy. And they see like totally the ghost of her father who like confirms that he was murdered and stuff. No, and take off, eh? They get mixed up in this, like, crazy adventure, right? Also, they're drunk the entire time, and they have this dog named Hosehead that flies at the climactic moment of the movie. <laughs> and at one point, Rick Moranis memorably drinks enough beer that it turns him into the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. <laughs> yep. All of these things happen in this movie. Um, I find it charming, but... Maybe if you're not Canadian, and maybe if you're not into Bob and Doug, you wouldn't. So where do you land there, Chuck World? Okay, well, you started with your history, and so <laughs> I'll I'll mention mine as well because because it is a such a Canadian movie, right? Yeah. And um, so I didn't have quite the close connection that you did, although my dad really loves SCTV, right? And so that's where it comes from. That ooh, coo, 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 coo. Yeah. <laughs> The Great White North. All the eh? time. All the time he would do that. So so I was definitely familiar. It's funny, I don't remember seeing Strange Brew when I grew up. When I was growing up. Like I I wonder if this was the first time I saw it actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is because I um, say definitely shots from this is nineteen eighty yeah. Yeah, yeah nineteen eighty three. Yeah. Definitely shots from the film I recognize and 
some of the things that were said, because my dad is one of those people who likes to quote movies. So, I, I mean, I've heard some of those, but I don't know if I've ever seen it or not. So, that said, eh, it's all right. <laughs> I'm sorry to... <laughs> Not be as enthusiastic as you are, (laughs) but it's really dated. And I mean, of course it's, it's like a part of Canadiana. And so I definitely appreciate it on that level. And, and like you said, Canadian produced and Canadian writers and actors and the rest of it. I think that all that is lovely and excellent and should be held up as a, as an example of a 1983 example of go Canada. Yeah. Um, but it does really make me nostalgic for the era of like, Really ugly toques and those like <laughs> stubby brown beer bottles yeah. and like uh, yeah and that's and that's exactly it's like this record of... yeah and I do think particularly if you are Canadian there's some lovely nostalgia here's like questions for you just just I don't know if you have the answers but why do you think that they went for the Hamlet structure here oh God well I mean of course it'd just be speculating I have <laughs> yeah, no I idea. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I guess the idea is that if they're like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or they're like, like mm-hmm. they're the dumbest characters, they walk into like mm-hmm. the most complex plot. But it's a strange, it's a, <laughs> it's a strange choice mm-hmm. and not the first. A mystery that may never be solved. Another mystery about this film that may never be solved. How do they get Max von Sydow <laughs> to play their villain? Uh, Paul Dooley plays Claude in the Claudius role, but uh, he himself sort of uh, is piggyback or has a sort of a, a an overvillain who's played by Max von Sydow, and his bizarre drug experimentation where he's using the neighboring mental psychiatric hospitals mental patients to go to war at each other in these elaborate hockey fights. Doesn't it sound like that, that that I just made up some stream of consciousness just then? That yes. like I lapsed into some kind of seizure yes. or stroke while I was talking, but all of these things are actual plot points in this the movie. The hockey games are great, too. <laughs> you do not know what's around the next corner in this movie. And yeah. it's not often laugh out loud funny, although I'll argue that it does have its moments, but I have a smile on my face while I'm watching Strange Brew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm not going to say not watch it, but I am going to say it is for that specific audience. And if you are thinking, I'm not sure if I'm that specific audience or not, I'm going to guess you're probably not. But, you know, you can orient yourself. I'm sure you could YouTube some Bob and Doug McKenzie, you know, and oh, yeah. you kind of get the idea yeah. for the characters. Um, yeah. And... It's so funny that of all the things that would spark a movie out of a SCTV, that it would be Bob and Doug McKenzie. It's so <laughs> strange and, you know, weirdly distinctly Canadian. Yeah. Um, I don't know how it's viewed or how it is, you know, respected over the border, if it's as big a deal in, in, in the excited states as it is in Canada. But <laughs> most people our age group seem to be aware of it, whether or not yeah. they, they are treasure it or whatever. But yeah. You know, it's a genuine sort of cult Canadian film, and mm-hmm. uh, we don't have a lot of those. It's hard to... No. The, the Canadian film is so undervalued, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it, it's hard to, you know, get your hands to any Canadian films made Yeah, like, what, if you than, were to put other films in this category, what would be? What, Canadian Bacon? Is that one? Was that another one with John Candy and Andrea well, Martin, yeah, but it was later? Michael Moore directed that, and so oh. he's an American filmmaker shooting in Canada. Right. But, 
So that one doesn't even count. Yeah. But you, <laughs> you know, you go immediately to Adam McGoyan and Cronenberg, but then you're going sure. to the top of the list, right? Yeah. So there's there's yeah. not a lot. I mean, Bru- yeah. Bruce McDonald, maybe, like, yeah. hardcore logo and Pontypool and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. We undervalue our films, and uh, it's nice that we have a genuine sort of cult object. And I, I, I do think that, that Strange Brew fits the bill. It Strange Brew is an appropriate name for the movie. It is weird. It is very weird. Yeah. And strangely meta. It starts with, like, a screening of the Bob and Doug McKenzie movie, which is really <laughs> bad. And the audience revolts, and then we cut to the theater, and Bob and Doug McKenzie are in the theater. I mean... Yeah. You know, we're going to get to a real properly meta comedy when we talk about being John Malkovich, but here we are in Strange View, this stupid Canadian SCTV <laughs> comedy, and uh, that, that's in the first reel here. It's there. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm a fan. I'm a fan, but I mm-hmm. know that it's personal, so I well, will... Well, I, 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 I agree with you. It's a cult Canadian classic, and so um, you, it, it, it's worth seeing on that alone, right? So when... When people talk about it, you know what they're talking about. And I think it's fun to see Always Canada used to look like. Like you're talking about the short stubby beer bottles and stuff like that. Or the logos that have changed. I mean, even that stuff can be fun to <laughs> to look at. And I, if you're familiar with Hamlet, yeah. then that's interesting. That's an interesting thing, too. I also, you know, i got to think that uh, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis must have had a ball. They wrote it. They directed it. They starred mm-hmm. in it. There's a, a memorable mm-hmm. scene where they're supposed to deliver a keg, but it's also an elaborate trap to get them killed, and the brakes are going to fail in the car. Yeah. But they decide to stop off home to fa- feed Hosehead, their, their <laughs> beloved dog. And uh, when they do, they uh, interrupt their parents in an act of coitus. Yes. And their parents are played by Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. <laughs> 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 strangely briefly subversive sexy and there's also that awkward thing of like kids yeah. walking in on their parents but they're not kids like they're they're at least in their late 20s for the story <laughs> the only reason their father puts up with them being around is they get free beer for working at Elsinore Brewery yeah, I guess. That's right. there's lots of strange and memorable moments throughout the film um, it's it's worth a look indeed I have some fun facts fun facts fun facts to share about Strange Brew. Okay, so one of them was, before filming all the major breweries, one of the McKenzie brothers to appear in beer advertisements. The filmmakers had the promise of Molson's Brewery, but once the brewery found out that there was a joke in the film about putting a mouse in a beer bottle so that a can complaint can be made in order to get free beer, right. um, they distanced themselves from the film. The filmmakers were also banned uh, from filming in a brewer's retail store and from using the name Brewer's Retail. So in Ontario right alcohol the sale of alcohol is owned by the provincial government right so you have to go to an lcbo or back in the day a brewer's retail store so because they couldn't use that store they ended up building a replica of the store at a cost of more than forty five thousand dollars and calling it the beer store they just kept it simple right so ironically, Brewers Retail later changed the name of its stores to the Beer Store, and uh-huh. they continue to operate under that name today. So there you go. Anytime you're Ontario and you go to the Beer Store, does life you can thank art, or does art imitate life? I man? don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the voice, not the actor, as you said, of Bob and Doug's dad is uh, Mel Blanc. Mel Blanc. Yeah. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. 
And during the hockey game, Bob says, he saw Jedi 17 times, eh? And Jedi wasn't out yet. Return of the Jedi opened in May of 1983. Strange Brew production wrapped in December 1982. So not only had the McKenzie brothers not seen the movie, but they couldn't refer to its full title as the Revenge vs. Return issue was still up in the air while they were filming. Yeah. (laughs) They have this weird post-apocalyptic, like uh, Mad Max by way of... Bob and Doug at the beginning of the movie. Uh, so yeah, they're also nerds on top of being hockey freaks. Yeah. Yeah. Great to see lovable Canadian characters being embraced by the world. Yes. Go team. Get me smoochy. You're telling me that Kidnet is finally ready to pursue a show of smoochy caliber. Hey, it's smoochy! Come on! Hello, New Jersey! Despise you. I love you! Now. Traitor! My body was barely cold and you went to work for the rhino. I gotta eat, don't I? The only way to take back his career is to take down his replacement. In this jungle. Going on safari. Safari. So I'm a fan of Danny DeVito. The man, the actor, and the filmmaker, just generally speaking. Yeah. I, I like him. Um, Me too. He's always, you know, unmistakably Danny DeVito in the movies. He's very, you know, distinct. But uh, I think he's a solid actor. But I think he's an even better director in a lot of ways. I mean, I find most of his films to be very well made, very, you know, richly produced. And he also has sort of a dark sense of humor. If you look at his comedies that he's done, you got Throw Mama from the Train. You got War of the Roses. You've got this one, uh, Death to Smoochie, that we're going to talk about. Duplex. Oh, I didn't see that one. And they're all basically uh, very dark-themed comedies. This is sort of an odd one in that when Death to Smoochie came out, it was sort of treated like uh, the worst movie that had ever dared grace the screens, you know? It was critically lambasted. It was a theatrical flop. It was another one of these movies brimming with talent that everybody just couldn't wait to line up and, and point and scowl at. Kind of surprised me, but I sort of believed the press, so I, I didn't see it. I had sort of caught up with it, this Smoochie. Even people involved with it. You and I lived together. We used to watch The Daily Show all the time, mm-hmm. and Jon Stewart would regularly shit-talk his own work yeah. in Death to Smoochie. Yeah. Nobody seems to like Death to Smoochie, except for I really like Death to Smoochie. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's perfect. I think there's some problems, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's anywhere near the best end of, of Danny DeVito's work, mm-hmm. but I think it's got guts. Yeah. I think it's got bold, dark, funny satire. Okay. The romantic angle, as so often in the cases of these uh, romantic comedies or comedies, doesn't fly, especially in the backdrop of all this other darkness. The sweetness just doesn't render well. <laughs> So you have to ride that line where it's too dark, where it's not funny, or it's still so funny, but we can't take anything seriously. And especially with the wacky kids show universe and the over the top strutting performance from Robin Williams, the late, great Robin Williams. Yeah, it is. You said that uh, Jim Carrey was originally attached to it. I kind of buy that. And Mm -hmm. Robin Williams seems to be trying to bring that sort of level of carry crazy unhinged energy to the part. Mm-hmm. And some scenes it works better than others, mm-hmm. but overall I think it's a solid Robin Williams performance. Mm-hmm. But 
and yeah. classic Robin Williams in a lot of ways because he does a Robin Williams is known for doing a bunch of different voices and takes on things. Improv, yeah. And absolutely, that's what he does for uh, you got to believe there's a lot of ad-libbing there. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of pep and a lot of energy. But I still have to say, you know, in the wake of you know, the fact that Robin Williams committed suicide subsequently, you know, yeah. it's weird when you look at a scene that is darkly hilarious but still brutal. Yeah. Where he pours gasoline over himself and attempts to light himself on fire in front of a group of people, including children. Yeah. <laughs> for a laugh. Star-studded for its day, too. Catherine Keener was, a, you know, at the height of her popularity. Yeah. She kind of plays the same bitch role we're going to be talking about when we talk about being John Malkovich. Yes. Know? Yes, Br- she does. Broom account, like I say, John Stewart. No one had quite figured out how to best use John Stewart yet, but mm-hmm. uh, here he is. Here he is, yeah. Strangely, Harvey Firestein as yeah. like a mob heavy, which seemed like a bit of an uncomfortable mix mm-hmm. to me. But I think maybe if I didn't know who Harvey Firestein was, maybe he would read more intimidating. But mm-hmm. I just kind of was bemused by it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And Edward Norton. And of course, yeah, our star. <laughs> yeah. Who had just come off American History X. Yeah, and playing a total kind of yokel. So yeah, there it is. I like Death to Smoochie. I said it. I can't unsay it. It's going to be out on the internet. It's just out there. One of the most universally hated films of all time. And I'm going to sit here and defend it. Will you defend it with me? I will. <laughs> Thank you, Charlene. <laughs> My name's Larry Parsons, and I like Death to Smoochie. <laughs> I like Death to Smoochie, too. <laughs> Feels good, sort of freeing to say it out loud, doesn't it? Such a release. Yeah. Too funny. I mean, our humor has always been on the darker side, and so I definitely think that if you were to enjoy this movie, you have to be willing to go there. You have to be okay with it, right? I kind of think, like, of Drop Dead Gorgeous in terms of the level of, like, dark comedy. Harsh humor, almost. Yeah, yeah, but if you love it, fucking hilarious. Like, just crazy funny. Like, one of my favorite things about Death to Smoochie is the songs that Edward Norton sings yeah. to uh, the Methadone Clinic. <laughs> We're gonna get you up that crack, oh yes we will. We'll get you up that smack, oh yes we will. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're gonna get you up that smack. We'll get that monkey off, off your back. back. It's oh, catchy. we'll get you up that smack, oh yes we will. It is, and yet to see all the... All these oh, depressed figures with half-open eyes, like, yeah. Barely conscious, waiting in their methadone shot, <laughs> watching this guy dressed in a homemade rhinoceros convers- he's costume. Like, yeah, he's got a hockey helmet that he's, like, painted different colors and added things so he can have it. Uh. See, Chuck and I, with our dark little hearts, we <laughs> laugh at this, but I think it's <sighs> understandable and maybe even reasonable for somebody to look at that scene and just... Be a gas, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but if you're not a gas yeah. by that, if that is funny, you will get that. The basic story is mm-hmm. yes, Robin Williams' character has had great success in the children's television, but because he happens to also be a crazy son of a bitch, destroys his own career through greed and stupidity, mm-hmm. and he is replaced by this yokel, <laughs> uh, Edward Norton, uh, who of course brings Smoochie to the world. And it, and being the uh, antithesis of of rain, rainbow root ran, oh, I can't even say rainbow it. Randolph. Thank you, yeah. rainbow Randolph. That he's this pure of heart, 
<laughs> no, he's not just a yokel. He's pure of heart. He really wants to to serve his his audience, yeah. and he's you know about proper food and nutrition, like all that stuff. Yeah, I, I think an interesting note is played because this is Norton, fairly fresh off of American History X, where yeah. he was just this powerful force of frightening evil, you know. And he kills it. Yeah. He's so good. The fact that he went this far to the other end is interesting, but I also think they yeah. used it because as Smoochie gets pushed through the plot, and I will get to the plot here in a second, <laughs> as Smoochie gets pushed more and more as, you know, he sees how corrupt this world is and, you know, real serious consequences befall him. There's this one little line he drops when he first created Smoochie uh, as a recommendation to channel his energy in his anger management class, where you kind of thought this whole thing was seated in him repressing something, and that... If that day comes where that where that pops, that, that he may just be the craziest fuck in the movie, right? Uh, it never happens, but maybe if they did a death to Smoochie too, they would go back to his, yeah. you know, his war background. They would have used that more if they were just planting <laughs> yeah. the seed in the first movie. Yeah. Um, I wanted to give... Well, let's talk about the plot. Sorry, I'm all over the place there. Um, no worries. I've been distracted. Yes. Robin Williams' character has destroyed his career. They need to replace him. They, so Edward Norton gets the job. Rudolph is still sort of living in the fringes. He's been rendered homeless. And he blames everything on the rhino and he wants to destroy his career. And over a series of plans, some funny, some not, uh, most of them fairly unsuccessful, he tries to either destroy and or kill Smoochie. That's the basic premise. Yeah. Um, It gets complicated by gangsters and, (laughs) you know... Naturally. Talent agents, talent agent played by uh, Danny DeVito, who all want to try to exploit this guy, but unlike every other schmuck who arrives in Hollywood, doesn't understand how to play ball and make money. He legitimately wants to make programming that is good for the kids, and he wants to sell them healthy vegan food, and he wants yeah. to do the right thing, and he's not full of shit. He is the real deal, and nobody knows how to deal with it. Yeah. And that's sort of a nice little clever part of it, <laughs> of the story anyway, I think. Problems, I think it's too long, and I think that the relationship yeah. angle between Catherine Keener and Edward Norton, they're trying to make this into sort of an arc and a romance. I don't know, where do you land on it? I'm always giving a hard time to the romantic angles in movies. I know, listening to the edit, I was like, I'm always hard on the romance, but I didn't but it buy it here. Yeah, and you know what, it doesn't always need to be there. I mean, I, I'm hard on the romance angle sometimes too, because I think it's just an easy way to... To go, oh, uh, we want women to watch this movie, and mm-hmm. women need romance, so we need to, um, we enjoy a good storyline, just like fucking anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, doesn't need to be about love, unless that's a natural part. So I agree with you, I think that it's a, <sighs> maybe it wouldn't have bothered me as much if I felt like their chemistry was better. Yeah. But because their chemistry didn't work, I didn't buy what was going on, and then it felt more put on. There was no reason for him to like her except that she was pretty. Because yeah. she was basically... She's super bitchy. Openly bitchy to him the yeah. whole time. Full on bitch face yeah. all of the time. And then she does like a 180. And then we have a scene where we find out not only is she into him, but she has this history where mm-hmm. she's like... She's been pushing him away. Yeah. She's like a kitty, a kid show groupie. She, really she, wants him. she likes children's TV hosts. Yeah. It's her personal grind. Yeah. And... 
if they'd seeded that or if there was something in the performance that suggested that, that this hostility was coming from an intense attraction, yeah. I think that maybe I would, uh, it would make sense. Sure. But I didn't You'd get that. To no. me, I was like, she's just being shitty to him. And uh, I know he's dumb, but he can't be so dumb as to be attracted to someone who's so openly shitty to him, yeah. right? <clears throat> so, no, I don't think that angle worked necessarily. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about, I think, the person who maybe steals the movie for me. We are introduced to this character, uh, I guess the slang term would be Paluka. He's a, a boxer who has taken way too many hits to the head. You know, nowadays this is more of a serious thing that is looked at, people who make their career in boxing and football having head injuries, but I'm going to say Michael Rispoli plays Spinner, the the sort of, he's a, like basically a mascot for this restaurant, which is backed by the Irish mob. And uh, he made their fortune. He's the reason that they're so successful. And they genuinely love and care for him. But he's mm-hmm. a handful. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. he's taken so many hits to the head that he's basically, you know, he's like a, a child. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really uh, have any understanding of controlling the volume of his voice. He's very excitable. Or how strong he is. Or He's also very sweet. There's something really genuine <laughs> and nice about him. And he's so excited to yeah. meet Smoochie, the rhinoceros. <laughs> And I don't know, it's it's a role, it's a, it's a tough tightrope to dance because, you know, are we making fun of people with brain injuries? No, I don't think we are, you no. know, but I don't think it's inauthentic no. either. I, I think that he made him a full rich character and uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't play out for Spinner and it kind of sucks. You're like, oh, dude, no. Um, and it's that murder scene where then all of a sudden the movie starts to maybe try to take itself seriously. Yeah. And I think that might be a tonal mistake. I mm-hmm. think they... They start broad and goofy, and and they should have maybe just stayed with that. Yeah. Tighten up the timeline, cut down or even lose the romantic angle. Yeah. And uh, don't ask us to, you know, be moved by it. Just ask us to laugh. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe he was a little, DeVito might have been a little overambitious. Yeah. Uh, especially when we get to this operatic ice show that we're going to talk about at the end of the movie. <laughs> so the singer Henry Rollins auditioned for the part of Spinner. And Rollins talks about that first audition uh, with Danny DeVito on his spoken word performance DVD, Henry Rollins, up for it. Right. Circa 2001. And part of which, that audition, part of which consisted of him throwing a chair at Danny DeVito. <laughs> so we were just saying, yes, Henry Rollins... You're good in other ways, but Spinner being the the lovable thing that we, you know, I can definitely see how... There's something super (laughs) intense about Henry Rollins. He can't even help it. It's sort of like we talk about Mark Wahlberg always looks vaguely pissed off, or Ice Cube Mm -hmm. always just looks vaguely pissed off. I don't think it's that they are. It's just like their standing general face just looks like they're vaguely irritated. (laughs) Yeah. Not their fault. <laughs> Similar thing here, you know. It's a great movie. If you love really dark comedies, this is definitely worth checking out. I don't think it... it I don't understand why it deserved um, such panning. Certainly understand partially why, yeah. or why people would say, ah, uh, you know, maybe m- mid-range movie three out of five stars or something like that but it's not a it's not a one star it's disappointing considering the level of the talent involved and the pedigree well and i think it's quite it's quite quirky as well it's really kooky to be in this children's entertainment world and 
and like you're saying, <laughs> the ice dancing at the end and stuff, like, I guess maybe for mainstream, it's really kind of pushing it for them, maybe. Well, they've kind of, when they go super serious and we're trying to get a little bit into Edward Norton's psyche and is he legitimately going to break or is he going to stay this, you know, sweet, but maybe kind mm-hmm. of dumb, <laughs> naive, let's say, yes. uh, yeah. fellow, naive. Uh, or is he going to go back to what uh, an only very vaguely hinted at dark past, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, uh, and they, at the end, they leave it open. Like they wanted to do more. Yeah. Um, you know, he chases down the person that he feels responsible for Skinner's death with a gun, and they try to make you believe that he's going to shoot him, and it becomes this big moment for yeah. the film, and yeah. uh, this big ice show that he makes, the designs, to that's all for him. It seems like a break in his character, because like, he's always talking about for the kids, for the kids, for the kids. Mm-hmm. That ice show was all about what had happened to him since he made his fortune becoming smoochy. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine what a kid in the audience of this ice show would make of it. Other boredom or, or fear, maybe, <laughs> you know? <And> then, <laughs> it's not a kid's show, son of it. And it's, of For course, sure. interrupted by a, a, a sniper taking a shot and almost killing Smoochie, you know? Yeah. Uh, played memorably, I thought, by Vincent Schiavelli, an interesting guy in one of his yeah. last roles. Uh, one of the first lines that he gives, uh, I always laugh when I hear it, is... Uh, Sorry if I smell like piss, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you smell like piss, I guess. Yeah, I think that there's enough good that... I understand why people would be disappointed, like I say. this Considering all the people involved, you know, this should have been good. The writer also has a writing credit on this infamously not great comedy called Cabin Boy. So, not a great pedigree, I guess, from there. But everybody else involved, you know, this should have been an amazing movie. And it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. So I'll still say, check out Death to Smoochie. Don't believe the negative hype. Mm-hmm. Um, is it for everybody? No. no. It's a very dark comedy. And as far as why we consider it as a secretly a horror movie, well, yeah, people are killed, you know. Even the ending, the problematic, like I say, seriously toned ending. Yeah, it's very noble that he refuses to pull the trigger himself and he's going to be the rhino. But he leaves them in the loving, caring hands of the Irish mob. Yeah. Who I'm pretty sure aren't going to, you know... Let him go. Give him a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like... He just cleans his hands of it directly. You gotta keep it light and goofy so that, like, there's still death, but it's not as felt. The stakes are there but not so high as that you know that it that it runs into thriller genre I, mean, mm-hmm. I think it was it didn't quite know where it was tonally yeah um yeah that's a good call the the comedy like you say the the songs and the satire the the penis shaped cookie you know like that stuff dad, all works does fine. not mean he's just adjusting that's right <laughs> This is memorable stuff for you. Like, I just think that's really bold, like, funny It is, comedy. and you need to hear the rest of that song, too. <laughs> yeah. That is just one line. Ugh. Kills me. Fun facts for Smoochie. Okay, so the ice skating stunts at the end of the movie, because they didn't just give you an ice show. They actually did a bunch of tricks and what have you. Um, were choreographed and skated by Canadian skater Elvis Stoiko. Stoiko. There you go. But what would Brian Boitano do? Uh, when hosting the 78th Annual Academy Awards, John Stewart mentioned this movie as one of his few acting jobs. He said, 
Welcome to the 78th Annual Academy Awards, hosted by me, the fourth male lead in Death to Smoochie, Rent It. And uh, in Sheldon, who's Edward Norton's character's uh, character, his house or apartment, he has a picture of a rhino on the wall. He kept that picture, and apparently it's hanging on his wall to this day. Aww. Aww. Yeah. Seven and a half, right? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Plummer building. My name is Craig Schwartz and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. <laughs> so, honey, you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. You see the world through John Malkovich's eyes? <laughs> And then after about 15 minutes... That's not me. I didn't say that. You're spit out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? I don't think anybody could have seen being John Malkovich coming, really. <laughs> I mean, Charlie Kaufman was not the brand that he's sort of become. Um, <clears throat> but he'd been known for like writing the sitcoms, like Sybil Shepherd's TV show, you know. Um not a huge pedigree and uh, Spike Jones was basically the guy who you know hung out with the jackass crew and did cool music videos and skateboarding videos and mm -hmm. uh, you know plots such as it is um, our, our main character played by John Cusack gets a job at the Merton Flemmer building on the uh, is it seven and a half floor <gasps> can't believe we can't remember is it the seven? me neither anyway um it's a half floor. Yeah, so the whole his entire working environment he has to slouch in. He's introduced to his job through a, a training video that gives us the history of the building. And the entire world of being John Malkovich seems to be populated by odd and strange things. So. Mm. Uh, interestingly, the, the, the essential love triangle that, that, that we have in this movie between Catherine Keener and John Cusack and... Um, Cameron Diaz, thank go. you. I totally had a brain. <laughs> uh, and Cameron Diaz, uh, it basically becomes just a love triangle between these three characters, complicated by this portal that John Cusack has discovered, which gives him access to John Malkovich's brain. Mm -hmm. and at first, he just sort of is a piggybacking observer of John Malkovich, but as we get deeper into the movie, he finds he can control it, and this gives him certain advantages mm -hmm. it's a bizarre movie it's a bizarre premise and uh you know to break down the plot much more beyond that i don't know i don't know what it would serve we could talk you through the whole map of the movie but it's a movie that kind of runs on its on its vibe it is telling a story but it's telling a story in a different world than we've seen before mm -hmm. and um it's full of really good performances but i have to say the two really fascinating performances to me First off, I'd have to say, well, John Malkovich. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, um, 
if you get this script on your desk, you're going to say yes to the project. But he has to play himself in quotation marks and then himself possessed by various different characters. And, you know, himself also dealing with the stress of, am I going mad? What is happening to me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also want to give some points to Cameron Diaz because I've not seen her play in a role like this and it's not just because you know she's a pretty person who who makes herself plain for the movie it's a different character for her she's not mm -hmm. in like a particularly powerful character in a lot of ways she's got wants and needs but she doesn't know how to get them yeah um it's an interesting movie and it keeps on throwing ideas at you and um i think it casts a spell what you feel about or how you feel at the end of the movie, I think largely sort of is maybe where people will land on it. I look at it as kind of a fairy tale for adults, but like I say, a very dark one. Because when we get to the ending, and, and I do want to talk about it, I think that it's, it's quite dark. And uh, for a movie that is ostensibly, I guess, an absurd comedy, I think it might suffer from a problem that I have with a lot of horror movies in that who do we cheer for in this movie? Well, I probably cheer for Malkovich more than anything else for him just to regain That's the his correct brain answer, and body back. Everybody exploits him. Yeah. Um, the Catherine Keener character, much like in Death to Smoochie, sort of presents herself as a you know full force bitch pretty yeah. much entirely. It was just just sending out a vibe of no throughout, but. When she sees a way that she can exploit the John Cusack character, and if that means she's got to cuddle up to him a little bit, she's willing to do that if it means money. Yeah. Um, and she gets turned on by the power and the manipulation, really. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this one line where she says it's puppeteering, when she's convinced of the validity of puppeteering as an art. It's not playing with dolls. It's playing with people. Yeah. That's what makes it exciting to her, the idea of playing and manipulating the people. I think that her character is incredibly unlikable and she is the coveted object. She is the thing that destroys the marriage yeah. between Cameron Diaz and John Cusack mm -hmm. and she swings back and forth between both characters yeah. like a pendulum to wherever her needs are. I guess I've of the three I'm the most sympathetic to uh, John Cusack's wife like Cameron Diaz. Cameron yeah. Diaz. Um, she is not altruistic. She does some bad things, but uh, her want. She probably comes, means well more than. Her want comes from a genuine lonely loneliness, yeah. and her husband in the worm turning scene for the John Cusack character mm -hmm. literally hog ties her and throws her in a monkey cage and yeah. leaves her there. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. But I would hate that scene. But then we wouldn't have the beautiful monkey flashback in which the monkey remembers how to untie. Yeah. Cameron Diaz. <laughs> so many lovely, oh. bizarre, wonderful moments throughout uh, the film. <laughs> ain't that the truth? Yeah, it is. It is such a strange, strange movie. It's uh, it's totally out there. It's it's totally on its own vibe. It's I don't know. Then the fact that I mean they could have called it being whatever name and not chosen a famous actor. Yeah. But they didn't. They raised the stakes by choosing someone who was going to use his real name too. You know, like it's it's just it is. It's wonderfully bizarre, and it is. Yeah, I think the fairy tale analogy is a good one too. 
The world is strange and heightened, but it has a strange consistently consistency to it. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what's going to happen next, Ever. and it makes it so compelling <laughs> because you have no idea what direction they're going to turn in. You know, like um, when Malkovich uh, goes down the tunnel. Malkovich goes into his own portal, and yeah. the question is asked: What happens to a man who enters his own portal? This also infers that every man has a portal, I guess. Sure. Maybe. I don't know. We didn't get that. We only ever see Malkovich's portal. Yeah. But we are treated to a very spectacular spectacular <laughs> series of visual oddities. Rooms full of Malkoviches. Malkovich. <laughs> the world Malkovich. of Malkovich. Um, and uh, when he spit out the other side, he is almost rendered insane by it. Yeah. That is a crazy scene. And it's amazingly well rendered by a, a clearly visually astute director. Yes. And then you follow up that scene. Who does he go to for advice? To console. Who is Malkovich's rock? Charlie Sheen. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that it's a plot point that the person that he goes to to talk to about his crazy girlfriends or these weird voices (laughs) in his head is Charlie fucking Sheen. And that becomes more funny as time goes on. Yes. Yes, it does. (laughs) Winning. Absolutely love this movie. But I gotta say, when we get to the end, um, the the smile kind of dies in my face a little bit when you sort of think, as silly as this movie is, it does have some kind of dramatic stakes. You want to see the story through. I don't know who I'm cheering for, but I'm most sympathetic to... But it kind of, it rides the edge. Like, it remains playful for so long. Um, and maybe it's gonna, oh, now it's gonna get really dark, and it does a bit, but, but it just drops sharply, Yeah. you know? I mean, I agree with you. I'm sympathetic to Malkovich. All of a sudden, he's hearing voices in his head, or he feels like his body's being moved. This woman shows up out of mm-hmm. nowhere, who seems to be trying to talk to one of the voices in his head. Worse than that, all of a sudden, he ends up getting his body completely overtaken yeah. for a long period of time. John Cusack just stays, manages to stay inside of Malkovich. He thinks it's because he's a puppeteer that he's better at using the body, but mm-hmm. he can choose to hang on for as long as possible. Yeah. And uh, that's how he wins, quote-unquote, and ends up being with Catherine Keener. All this time, Malkovich is pushed back to the back of the head where he's basically just a witness to all that is going on here. And... Uh, to have your entire body like in life hijacked from you and be sit there as a mute witness that's that's kind of horrifying and we find out even it's absolutely when, horrifying even when he is freed when the cusack characters you know talked into leaving malkovich briefly it's all for naught the group of people that we find out who have been following malkovich with such interest have been waiting for quote his mind to become right so that they all may go into the portal and they'll sort of mold into this one Malkovich person and in that way perpetuate and ostensibly live on forever. Yeah. But in theory, if we're going through the context of the movie, Malkovich is still pushed to the back seat. He's still lost and obliterated and permanently just yeah. going to be able sitting in the back watching, having no say, no control, which yeah. is an ugly fate. Uglier still is the fact that because... We find out after the portal has been used that time when the brain is ripe, all of the things divert to the next in line. So when John Cusack goes in, he goes into the fetus of the 
pregnant Catherine Keener, mm -hmm. where he has to stay forever in the back of that girl's mind and watch the two women that he loved live this life together through the eyes of their daughter. Well, his daughter. Sort of a just fate for him. Through the eyes of his own daughter. Well, he's a villain, and he, like I say, when he hogties his wife and throws her in the cage, yeah. like, uh, yeah. like I'm no longer cheering for him. No. But as like an eternal, cruel, like, fate, it's brutal. It is and brutal. I don't really have any satisfaction in the fact that the, the, the ladies got together. I wasn't happy for them. That's because true. Because I didn't like either of them. Yeah. Malkovich is obliterated. Two characters we don't like get together, and one character we don't like is given the most hellish punishment almost imaginable. It's a great movie. You should see it. Credits. And <laughs> it's a comedy. It's a comedy that's <laughs> secretly a horror yes. movie. Yes. Um, yes. But it is absurd, and it is worth the journey, and uh, it sounds like I got all dour at the end. I don't think they necessarily stick the ending. I think the ending's part of the reason that sort of makes it memorable and distinct. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's one of the things that's kind of a deal-breaker for some people with this movie. Yeah. They, uh, they're like, they're going with the funny vibe, and then all of a sudden it gets kind of sort of dour and dark and sort of almost serious yeah. at the end. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's not for everyone. You really have to be able to go there. Yeah. and It uh, is so strange and so out there and so, yeah. So if you can jump on that bandwagon, you're good. But both Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman, you know, they made an instant fan for me. Like anything and either continue name, to prove. Yeah, absolutely. Anything either of them will lend their name to, I'll take a look at. Yeah. Doesn't matter. I don't need to know anything else about it. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm positive on being John Malkovich. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say? Do you have some fun facts to I share? D I do have... I searched down it. Well, fun fact number one, and perhaps this one won't surprise you really, is that uh, when Spike Jones approached John Malkovich about being in the film, the actor said he liked the concept, but thought another actor would do a better job. <laughs> he offered to help with production, but ultimately turned it down. After, se after several years of persistence really? on the part of Jones, Malkovich agreed to star in it. Huh. You see, that just seems like something that you would just say yes to. If you, if does you, it? You, it I mean, certainly John Malkovich is the type of actor who can pull it off, and he does, right? I guess the question But it be, is rolling the dice to have a movie called, you know, being John Malkovich, being myself, and it's so quirky and odd and out there. And, I guess you wouldn't want it to be a bad film, I guess. And the worry with something is... Uh, bold and original as this that it could it's either going to be embraced or not i think yeah. it was embraced but mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. I, I think if somebody came to me with that script and wanted to use my like this i would just be tempted to say yes just because i'd be weird like why did you choose me why am i your quote unquote every man and then we read it and just see how weird and dark it is I'm like yes by all means i i don't think i would need too much whining and dining i'm saying but um I don't think that there's a, a paying acting gig I would say no to. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing was the can scene. Remember the scene where the drunk man throws a throws half a full can of beer at Malkovich's head? Yeah. Um, that actually happened. So initially, director Spike Jones didn't want to do it, but according to Malkovich, many volunteers' hands went up when he talked about it. Right. So John Cusack's writing partner ended up being the chosen one who threw the beer can at his head. <laughs> Yeah, those are the two fun facts I had about that. Well, um, I think that it's an experience worth having. Not everybody will love the movie, but I think mm -hmm. if you're into movies, you should get around to watching it. 
Yeah, check it out. So, Guy, let me ask you a question. Why do you want this? All my favorite memories have been of movies. Guy has just started working for the biggest producer in Hollywood. I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you could start right away. And he thinks he's in heaven. You... Ow, ow, who do you work for? Have... If you were in my toilet bowl, I wouldn't bother flushing it. No brain. Too bad. He's gone to hell. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm just trying to help. The boss who owns him. What are you doing? So Kevin Spacey went through this period in the 90s where every movie he was in seemed to be super popular and really good. The streak inevitably had to end, but um, I sort of include Swimming with Sharks in this sort of canon of great 90s Spacey performances. For sure. And uh, it's one of the quintessential sort of son of a bitch roles. Mm-hmm. And he's done a few of these, but I really think that this Hollywood producer who spends his time berating his personal assistant played by Frank Whaley is one of the roles I think about. If I'm thinking about Kevin Spacey, I kind of go to Buddy Ackerman, I believe, mm-hmm. is the name of the character that he's playing. And um, he has spent his life to get to the position that he is in, and he has eaten a lot of shit. But now that he's in the big chair... He is going to enjoy himself. Mm-hmm. And part of the gig is that he gets to treat his assistant like meat. It's just how it's done. It's just... Paying your dues. In a way, it's not even personal. And the the, the position is so coveted slash feared <laughs> that even though it's basically a menial job, if you do it long enough, you're almost guaranteed some kind of juicy position somewhere in the Hollywood machine mm-hmm. to make your years of humiliation worthwhile. Yeah. And what we basically are treated to is this kid from the, his first day to the end of his first year in this sort of Hollywood meat grinder and where he goes from sort of starry-eyed, gosh, it's my first day, I'm going to give it my all gumption kid to a guy we see who has kidnapped, tortured, has his boss tied to a chair and has been torturing him. We see the entire story as sort of a series of flashbacks as Kevin Spacey's character is being tortured by Frank Whaley. And we see why we got to the place where we are. Um, And it's a comedy. (laughs) But I do think it's a comedy. I do think it certainly belongs more in the comedy rack than the thriller rack. Yep. But... It is dark, like I said, and I do think that it does have some sharp edges to it, especially when we get, once again, to the third act. Um, Also interesting faces to be seen here, Michelle Forbes sort of plays another producer and possible love interest, and a really nice one-scene role from Benicio Del Toro as the guy who's showing Frank the ropes on his first day. Yeah, as he's leaving to move up. So um, I guess I sort of tip my hand that I'm a big fan of Smooth Sharks, but <laughs> where do you land on it? When I watched it, I wasn't sure if I'd actually seen it before. I think I have seen it before, but maybe once when it came out a long time ago. So it was mostly new to me. <laughs> and uh, it's really good. God, Kevin Spacey, you just can't say enough about him. He just he nails it. He owns it. He kills it. And... Even, you know, these multiple scenes where he's berating his assistant and his assistant leaves and he gets a smile of satisfaction. He just, 
he just does that so that kind of thing so well and I mean I think we see a more a darker more mature version of that and again I'm gonna say house of cards yeah um that he does now but um uh I think about Hollywood being um a tough place full of egos um, this is definitely underlined <laughs> in this. And uh, I think the the biggest problem I had, and it wasn't huge overall, but was I didn't quite believe the chemistry between Michael uh, Michelle Forbes' Frank character Lily. and Frank. Yeah, I just, I kind of get it. I was like on board like 70% with it. You to know, me, but she's like, she's a hardened producer and she doesn't trust him. I think it's similar to what they were going for in The Death of Smoochie, but I think better realized in that yeah. she has a hard outer shell because she expects everyone to be full of shit. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't believe this yokel act. Mm-hmm. And she's suddenly more interested when she realizes it's not an act. And yeah. The fact that he's genuine yeah. at all makes him interesting. Yeah. I, I, I bought it, I guess, a little bit. Um, for me, yeah, the movie does belong to Kevin Spacey. If there's a flaw to his performance, I think, it is that, that he's enjoying it so much. I understand him smiling after Frank Wiley leaves the room, but there's something about the way he's berating him that you can tell he's enjoying himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah. I also want to give fair play to Frank Wiley because it's he gives as good as he gets, well, at least in the in the flash-forward scenes. Yeah. You know, with the paper cuts and with him sort of Ugh. play by giving him a blow by blow on all of the indignities that he's suffered. That was the worst. He he beat him up, gave him paper cuts on his face, and then poured uh, lemon juice and salt and hot, hot sauce, sauce all over on it. Oh God! And uh, shaved his hair, cut up his haircut because he knew he was super vain about his hair. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're like, yeah, this gets really, really personal. Like, yeah. what what did it lead to? And I think that's maybe one of the more obvious things that what made it personal? What was the last straw? Well, what are the things that will ruin any relationship between men? It usually boils down to one of two things. Money or women or sex, <laughs> we'll say, right? Sure. Um, so when he believes that Kevin Spacey is... Uh, going to try and steal his girlfriend from him or humiliate his girlfriend uh, in a power play. That's the last straw. That's the one step too far. He will suffer any indignity thrown at him, it seems. And uh, it definitely has taken its toll on him and he's definitely not the person he was. Mm -hmm. Um, But is he, you know, does he still really want to be part of this? Is this still his dream? Is he willing to do anything to be successful in Hollywood? I think that's a big yes. And that's where the movie goes, yeah. Um, we don't, I don't think we necessarily anticipate the ending, but the movie mm-hmm. doesn't lie to no. us. Um, Frank Whaley wants to make it big in Hollywood, and this is the shortcut to do it. And in the way, he does it, he's more successful than anyone, because he does it in a year. There's a big confrontation between him and Kevin Spacey when he uh, screams, you know, I didn't give a year of my life to you. And Kevin Spacey cuts him off and said, I did it for ten. That's right. He ate that kind of shit for 10 years. That's what turned him into this son of a bitch. You did it for one, and here you are, you crybaby. You need it now. Totally a whiny bitch, yeah. Um, But he's still, I mean, I can't defend his behavior either. He's still a son of a bitch. No. But at the end, Frank Whaley has a conscious decision to make, to join the dark side or to stay the pure person that he came to Hollywood as. And, well, and that's 
you're right. And um, towards the end of the movie, we get this big monologue from Kevin Spacey about how he didn't used to be a jerk about his wife. The whole story about his wife, you know, is a very different side of him, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think is even showing um, Guy or Frank Whaley the how it can change you so completely. And he still chooses it. Yeah. He wants to be a big player. He does not want to be the guy who gets yelled at. He wants to be the guy who yells. Yeah. He wants to be the guy who yells. Yeah. And, and he uh, gets that's it. That's why he extremely... puts up with the shit. And uh, he'll sacrifice anything to get that. If Michelle Forbes was the catalyst to make him torture the boss, the boss, she's also the thing he sacrificed to become a Hollywood player. He and sells his soul for it. It's a bitter pill. It's a bitter pill. And uh, we laugh and, you know, as he's being berated earlier in the movie and we're on his side yeah. throughout the movie. But it's interesting watching it again when you realize that in his heart, he is kind of the Kevin Spacey character or he, that's who he wants to be. Mm-hmm. That's his mission in life. That's his goal. I want to be the biggest, I want to be his biggest son of a bitch as Buddy Ackerman. And if that is his goal, why is he our protagonist? Why do we want him to be successful? And then that way, I guess we can enjoy him being berated by Kevin Spacey because on some level, maybe he deserved it all along. He Mm -hmm. kind of proved that by the end of the movie. Yeah. Michelle Forbes comes out of this movie in a body bag. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she gets blamed for the torture and the, you know, illegal activities. Mm-hmm. And Frank Whaley is raised from assistant to vice president of production or whatever. That He's was. still his bitch. But like Kevin he has Spacey he... owns him totally. That's it, right? Like it, like <laughs> uh, he sells his soul to have that power, that title. But in the end, he's in the same position, but worse, forever. Yeah. Because as long as Buddy's alive. He will fucking work that guy yeah. any which way he wants. And he will have to bend. Yeah. He can never... He played his card, right? You know? And so... And that's where the sort of horror angle does <laughs> come in. It's not the torture scenes, although the paper cut scene you're right is horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the, it is about that choice. It's not about, you know, somebody who, you know, put up with that and came out the other side a better person, you know? Yeah. No. 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 He, he was ground up and became yeah. another son of a bitch. Another piranha in the tank. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And when Buddy comes to get him and he's wearing that really silly baseball hat, actually. It just looks really odd. It doesn't look like his, his hair. Yeah. It is, but it just doesn't look like his character either. It's really silly. And just the look he gives him, right? It's yeah. just like, you're over. You're done. He calls him to his office and it's just clear that... Yeah. Ugh. It's... <laughs> It's great, it's dark, it's funny, it's got great lines. And, I, and then I don't at wanna, the end, it's like, ugh. It's like I do want to emphasize bunch. the funny, too, because we've been talking a lot about sort of where it leads, the sort of twist or the sort of darkness of the ending. Yeah. <clears throat> the journey getting there is quite light and quite funny. And I'm usually off about the romance. I did not buy their, their romantic angle, and I under, sort of understood it's the mechanism of it in the plot, that this was mm-hmm. going to be... It was going to be important. It wasn't a superfluous love angle. Like, yeah. Um, it was the one thing that you thought he wasn't willing to lose. In a way, it makes sense that she seems out of his league in that. That's another reason why he wouldn't want to make that True. sacrifice. Yeah. I've True. said before, Frank Whaley, and I'm a fan of his, but it sounds mean when I say it, but 
he's got this weird kid energy to him. He's got, he seems like he doesn't quite fully grown up yeah. into himself somehow. But yeah. he's a really good actor. He's sort of good in that sort of low status um, being kicked role, you know? Yes, he He's is. memorably one of the first people to get killed in, in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's really good, but it, it kind of sucks yeah. when you got to share half the movie with uh, Kevin Spacey and he's got these really juicy speeches yeah. and he's just killing it, just yeah. killing it. Um, overall, yeah, I really do recommend Swim with Sharks. When it first came out, this was like one of my favorite, favorite movies for a while. Like, mm-hmm. I just loved the shit out of it when it came out in the 90s. I think I'm a little less enthused about it as time goes on, yeah. but it's still great, worthy for the performances, and yeah. uh, it's a good, bitter comedy. But yeah. yeah, there's some darkness there. Yeah, fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact about Swimming with Sharks, it was made into, um, a st- or there's a stage adaptation of it. Which, when we were talking about it earlier, does make sense. Yeah. You can really you can really see it when you watch the movie. Uh, I thought what was interesting is that, that the adaptation was done in London in 2007 and Singapore in 2014, or 2012, sorry, 2012, but the movie came out in 1994. So it's interesting that over, you know, it's, 10 years later... It's got an audience out there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and of course, I mean, like Wag the Dog, the the themes and politics, the themes in Hollywood still ring true as well, right? Yeah. I have no doubt that it's an egotistical rat race, and you shoot down whoever you can, and it's a fickle business, and you're only as good as your last movie, and all that shit. I totally believe it. Wow. Um, I, I want to get, for me personally, of the movie business, I want to work on the arty end as much as possible, and the yeah. producing end as much, as little as possible, but... It's it's a business. It's a business. And, in in uh, Hollywood proper, with the big corporations running it, yeah, yeah. And it's worthy. It's a worthy place for satire. So that's why there's so many movies about Hollywood producers being sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah. Because there's lots of Hollywood producers who are yeah, sons of bitches. Funny, because it's true. <laughs> six comedies that are secretly horror movies reviewed and now it is time to rank them my uh this is your your third episode mm-hmm. your third episode for uh, your third time returning chuck world how are you gonna rank these movies uh, I, i'm fascinated <laughs> I, I think we have a chance of going for six for six maybe i don't know that's exciting i don't know we'll see um number six i think you know I think our listeners know. <laughs> nothing but trouble, maybe? Yes. Yes, nothing but trouble. Okay. Swing and a miss, as I said. Um, yeah. I, I'll go back. I'll, I'll still give them kudos for production value. You can see where the money was spent. But, yeah, that did not work out. Don't bother seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even an if interesting you're... catastrophe, right? It's not like no. so bad it's good. It's just a no. trial. It's just is. 
There's not even like even one good zinger moment or anything out of it. You know how sometimes they do that? They ruin the movie with putting the best moments in the trailer. Yeah, the biggest punchlines lost. Yeah. No punchlines. No. No. Uh, number five was Strange Brew. And I think that's why I'm, <laughs> one of the reasons maybe our, our list won't match up. We'll see. But um, again... Kudos to the Canadiana kind of, um, you know, flavor there. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, but given what else is uh, in this group, I think there were stronger choices. Moving on to number four. Uh, death to Smoochie. So I had a real hard time with number two, three, and four right. in my list. Because um, uh, I have a lot of love for Death to Smoochie. Um the kind of nostalgic value of it being on heavy rotation with our friends, you know, and that kind of thing. But really, um, it's not as well realized as, as some of the other choices on the list. Um, it's a lot of fun, though. It may not be the worst movie ever made, but it's certainly not awful. But not awful doesn't necessarily give it a high placement on the list, right? Right, <laughs> so. right, exactly. So number three, I put Swimming with Sharks. And I'm going to talk about my number uh, two at the same time because they're they're connected in terms of where I chose to put them on the list. Number two is Wag the Dog. Right. So um, those two, they're both really, really good. And in the end, I felt like um, Swimming with Sharks is kind of more on one concept my boss is an asshole and he's driving me to the brink um whereas i felt wag the dog had a more complex theme going on with it and it was i don't know maybe a bit meatier i suppose but they're both really well done and really well realized and i i enjoyed watching both of them and i think that um they're still worth a watch these days as well and yeah. you could redo them. You could do both of those movies and just tweak a few things for today's standards and they would still... They're very watchable. But yeah. Like, they, they didn't hurt to rewatch. It wasn't hard to revisit. So. Yeah. Absolutely. And then uh, number one, being John Malkovich. Being John Malkovich is so original and visually interesting and strange and weird and quirky and unexpected and mysterious. And it's... And it makes you stop and think about things you wouldn't normally stop and think about. Yeah. Right? It really leaves you with an impression. If you're willing to go down the rabbit hole of that film, it, it kind of really stays with you in an interesting way. And I think that um, when filmmakers do that kind of thing these days, I mean, you're always taking a risk when you release things to the public and ask for their opinion. But especially when it's so... Um, odd (laughs) like being John Malkovich's but it's successful yeah and so I thought it really earned its spot at number one well um, I was half right I mean uh, we're not giving out prizes yet again 39 episodes (laughs) still just one winner but we do definitely agree with the top and bottom I will Mm. give that right out like I don't need to I didn't have anything really good to say about it I feel like I'm trying like, I love the people in it. There's yeah. people in it that I really like. And <clears throat> I know that somebody worked really hard on those special effects. But it's it's this just grotesque spectacle that is just 
not worth anyone's time. Mm-hmm. It just, ouch, ouch. I wish it could say that this was so bad it's good. <laughs> That's where we yeah. landed with nothing but trouble. In fifth place, and this may seem low considering how much I hyped it, but I put Death to Smoochie. Ah. Um, we just watched it again together the other night, and like I, I fell in love all over with Michael Imperioli's character. Yeah. Smoochie! <laughs> I love you, Sheldon. But, um, you know, it does have its charm, but it, it it's longer than it needs to be, and it does have its problems. Yeah. Like, I, I'm saying, it does not deserve the horrible reputation that it has. Mm-hmm. It's totally decent, it's totally watchable, and it's a strong, dark comedy, but it falls well short of amazing. Um, Robin Williams have has some brilliant moments in here. Like, one of my favorite things is, when you get out of the business while you still have your dignity. Ow, fuck my balls. <laughs> like, great moments. But then there are other times where I think he's just a little bit, you know, a little too far off the hook. That, you know, yeah. DeVito didn't rein him in quite enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like I say, the tonal shift. I like the movie when it's being dark and funny and satirical and unapologetic, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it tries to pull up my heartstrings or it tries to add real stakes, I... Uh, yeah. But... I still would say watch Death to Smoochie. Mm-hmm. In fact, I say watch everything on this list except nothing but trouble. Yeah. Um, so there it is. Sentimentality and nostalgia go a long way. I said it at the top of the review. So strange view. Those hosers managed to make it all the way to four, eh? <laughs> which is pretty good, right? <laughs> Beauty. Beauty, eh? <laughs> um, it is, you know, for its rough edges and its datedness, it's pretty funny and absurd and weird and like the hamlet structure is an interesting if befuddling choice mm-hmm. i'm amused that max von Sydow is a villain in bob and doug mckenzie instead of some bond movie or something like this like the proceedings seem weirdly beneath him and i love the movie but like what the fuck is max von Sydow <laughs> doing here let's be real <laughs> um and uh i am a proud canadian and uh strange brew the adventures of bob and doug mckenzie if you don't like it, take off, eh? <laughs> um, in third place, I put Leg the Dog, but I am completely sympathetic to you putting it in second place. Mm. I think that I find it a bitter pill because of how much truth is in it. Yeah. I wish I could say that this was a brilliant piece of satire, but it almost feels real world to me. Like, uh, yeah. we are manipulated by the media. I don't know when it actually happened. Some people would say it was the O.J. Simpson trial where the media officially turned on us. Yeah. But um, it happened at some point, you know, mm-hmm. where the news was more about scaring and controlling, you know, a story or the yeah. big story that was distracting the real story or whatever paranoid conspiracy theory thing it is. Um, as snappy the dialogue is and as much as I love this kind of comedy, the stakes of the real world have taken a lot of the laughs out of Leg the Dog for me. Um, it's definitely an interesting movie and it's significant movie and worth watching. And, um, I think most things that Mamet, you know, puts his pen to, it's uh, usually, you know, interesting anyway, Mm -hmm. in some regards. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, two and three back and forth on a given day. So, you know, on that one, we're close. Mm Mm-hmm. So with Sharks, I made it all the way to number two. I think I spent too much time in the service industry. I didn't don't necessarily have stories about one particular boss who's a dick, but like when your job is to basically eat shit day in and day out, 
there is some catharsis. You, there is some dark fantasies that you have of like petty revenge. You know, mm-hmm. you never act them out. You just sort of have these little escapes in your head. Like, wouldn't it be nice to just dump this can over this woman's head while she's berating me? Yeah. I am lucky enough to have worked in retail in uh, a shoe department of mm-hmm. a major store. Shoes and luggage. I was lucky enough to work in for a while. I know. Try not to think of me differently. But there it is. <laughs> But when you have people who are trying to make fun of you by calling you Al Bundy from Married with Children, but instead calling you Ted Bundy, you want to beat the shit out of those people, but you can't because your job is to be friendly. Yeah. You, the indignities you suffer on a day-to-day basis, I could relate to. Of course, it's amped to a cartoonish level, and I would mm-hmm. never take anyone hostage or do this sort of petty revenge. Mm-hmm. But I think that that dark nerve, and I think that this is where the comedy works in the movie, before it goes off the dark deep end, like we talk about in the third act, that that's there. That's a real thing, especially if you've worked in the service industry. You have had days so shitty where you convinced yourself in the back room at your break that you could punch a stranger in the face, you know? Toil and work can lead us to these dark places, so I related to it. I've never worked in Hollywood, but I've had shit jobs, and uh, I connected there. Great performances all around. Indeed. But being John Malkovich is clearly the best movie of the, the six movies. And like, as soon as it's inclusion on the list, it's a, it's a unique special mo- yeah. movie. Like, mm-hmm. um, and there's other really worth talking about, you know, movies by Spike Jones and really worth talking about movies that Charlie Kaufman wrote. But this is the one that started it all. And uh, it's one of my very, very favorites. And I think that it, it earns sort of the title of this, Comedies That Are Secretly Horror Movies. Um, it's dark, absurdist theater, but in true sense of the theater thing, that it is about something. The world is strange, and yet it has rules that we follow, and it is talking about stuff. People are petty and shitty to each other in a way that this movie, as absurd it is, as it is, is more honest about than movies that aren't absurd, that are trying to be serious, you know? Mm-hmm. In the real world, people are a bunch of shades of gray, and increasingly darker shades of gray, it seems. Um, and that this comedy was honest about it. Um, and put good use to Charlie Sheen. I mean... <laughs> hey, it's, it's, he was uh, excellent in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We gotta give him Ferris. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming back again. I know you're gonna come back again. We're gonna talk about some lady killers, some tough ladies. Yes, I'm so, so looking forward to it. Someone is going to win again. Somebody has to win. It will happen. A ranking review will happen soon. But uh, (laughs) Charlene Roach, big friend of the show, is there anything you want to say to the kids on the internet before we sign off? Keep listening. Keep listening. That's right. Rankandreview at gmail.com. Let me know how you would rank the movies. Tell me I'm full of shit or, you know, tell me I'm not. I don't know. (laughs) It's nice to know people are listening. Episode 39 is all over. It's in the rearview mirror. It's mm-hmm. behind us. Um, thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Please uh, feel free to seek us out on iTunes and on Facebook. Please like the page. Give us a positive review, a four or five star review on iTunes. Helps people to find us. And uh, for 
me and Charlene. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review, and we hope that you continue. That is all. Anything you'd like to say <laughs> to the kids at home? <laughs> Join us again. Aww. Or Larry, at least. <laughs>